This is MPN. Welcome to Movie Matchup. I'm Casey. And I'm Grace. A podcast where we talk in-depth about two movies with a common theme. And at the end, we'll talk about menu items you can enjoy while having your movie marathon. Grace, what is this week's theme? This week's theme is Should Have Used Airbnb. Yay! Okay, so our first movie is Cabin in the Woods. Uh, And the description, according to Google, is (laughs) when five college friends arrive at a remote forest cabin for a little vacation little do they expect the horrors that await them one by one the youths fall victim to backwood zombies but there is another factor at play two scientists are manipulating the ghoulish goings-on but even as the body count rises there is yet more at work than meets the eye and our second movie and it is the plot description that comes up when i google so i don't know who it's from and we're just gonna go with it because it's the first one i saw however accurate it is <laughs> the second movie is bad times at the el royale the el royale is a rundown hotel that sits on the border between california and nevada it soon becomes a seedy battleground when seven strangers a cleric a soul singer a traveling salesman two sisters the manager and the mysterious Billy Lee converge on a fateful night for one last shot at redemption before everything goes wrong. Uh, kind of. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I just go with it sometimes, even if it doesn't match yeah, entirely. Because... I, yeah, mostly right, I think. Yeah. Okay. Find out how wrong that summary is <laughs> on this episode of Movie Match. <laughs> but first, what do they have in common? Right. So obviously the most the, the biggest thing that they both have in common is that these are both movies from Drew Goddard. Yes. Um who directed and wrote or co co wrote uh, both of them. And um they they also we chose them because they also have this sort of theme of being uh at at a place other than home, I guess. Yeah, like a temporary stay. <laughs> it's a temporary stay, yeah. It's it's a it's a vacation or, or kind of a vacation, I guess, um, that goes wrong uh, for for our characters. And isn't what it seems, like what seems like a simple like vacation, you know, house or hotel. Um, yes. There is more to it than, than simply being a house or a hotel. Yeah, in both cases we have a sort of... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Things are things are not what they seem. There's there's a a hidden aspect. Uh, the even going so far as some of the same um, uh, pieces of equipment. We have two way mirrors in both movies. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, people not seeming not not being who they seem to be. Um, in both cases, in in one in cabin, it's more a case of they are being. Uh, manipulated into certain boxes that they don't necessarily fit into whereas in in bad times it's very they are presenting themselves uh, to be somewhere that they uh, may not necessarily be I think that's interesting actually because it's it's in cabin they start as more complex characters and become stereotypes with like the you know with like things that are chemicals and things that that are happening to them and in bad times it's like okay you're going to take them at face value as simply like one thing whether it's like oh a vacuum cleaner salesman and then each of them are like much more complicated than they seem so it's sort of the opposite in that in that way Um, that's true yeah i hadn't thought of that but it's only we're we're presented the face value in in bad times and then we're given the backstory that sort of gives us the the color of who these people are um and and more information about them whereas uh in uh cabin it's you know we do get to know the characters more some of them more as we go along but it's also uh the the our main uh you know teens that we're following are purposely being sort of pushed into these these stereotypical boxes uh, as the movie goes along so they become in some ways less uh, complex as the movie goes yes um and then chris hemsworth is in both films yeah um and um also they both have 
uh, like gods plays like a big point in both films. Mm. So, you know, like in, yeah. in in Cabin where it's like the whole plot is like people being like, or, you know, puppeteers working like very hard to have human sacrifices to satisfy the gods. Like in bad times, you know, like let's have ourselves an allegory. And like Billy Lee has like the girls fight each other um, so that he can, you know, he can stay out of it and he can profit as like a lesson to not listen to the lies like of your gods. And then he like later plays roulette and is kind of like playing God there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Miles wants to confess the whole, the whole movie. He wants to confess his sins. And then obviously you have like Father Flynn who is pretending to be um, a priest. So. Yeah, very true. I hadn't thought of that before how much uh, sort of religion plays a role in, in bad times um, through the sort of the, the cult that the Crimson Hemsworth is, is running mm-hmm. uh, and just the themes with, because the Jeff Bridges is pretending to be a priest <laughs> throughout the whole thing. Yeah. I was, I was struck by um, the sort of uh, shady uh, uh, organizations who were, were sort of at the top of that were only sort of referred to by these terms like, management or upstairs yeah, throughout yeah. Both of these movies um it reminded me of i don't think you ever watched the middleman <laughs> um i or, didn't or read the comics but in that show they have uh you know an organization like that that they just call o2stk which stands for organization too secret to know which <laughs> is what i always think of whenever something <laughs> there's some term for the management you know that comes up in in something like this yeah, it's true. Like, Miles in Cabin, he's, you know, he's just one character. But essentially, his job is almost the job of all the employees mm-hmm. in Cabin in the Woods. It's like, his job is to just, like, watch something recorded and just, like, send it off, which is half of our characters in Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. are just, that is their job. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, another common theme, we've got secret observations happening uh, in both cases with, uh, you know, the recordings in um in Cabin in the Woods, and then the, there's literally just, like, an observation hallway <laughs> uh, in, in bad times where you can see into each of the rooms as you're going through. Um, yeah, it's curious that, 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 you know, the thought of being watched when you don't know that you're being watched is so, is so prominent in both movies. Yeah. Which is creepy. I don't even like being watched yeah. when I know I'm being watched, so... <laughs> All right. All right. You want to get Should into we... the movies? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll start with Cabin, which, oh my gosh, I forgot to write down the year it came out, but I want to say 2011. 2011? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> 2011. Interestingly, I actually saw Cabin first um, as a double feature, kind of, just when I went to the movie theater, I first saw um, Detention. And then immediately saw Cabin in the Woods right after because awesome. they were both playing at the, at the theater at the same time. And also not a bad double feature. It was they're both sort of like meta takes on horror. Uh, detention's a lot less pointed, I guess, concise in, in its deconstruction. But <laughs> we should do detention. But it's still there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wild movie, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Cabin in the Woods opens with uh, the characters. Uh, Sitterson, uh, played by Richard Jenkins, and Hadley, played by Bradley Woodford. Um, and they're just sort of um, in a facility. Uh, they look like just two regular old businessmen, <laughs> and they're discussing um, Hadley's wife is is baby proof, going baby proof crazy, even though she's not you know, pregnant yet. Um, Lynn, played by Amy Acker, comes in and informs them that uh, Stockholm has failed at something. Um, and so it's down to the U.S. and Japan. Um, uh, Citizen and Hadley don't seem worried about this, and they get into a little golf cart to go driving uh, somewhere. And as they're discussing their day-to-day lives, we get, bam, title card. (laughs) 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 Which is great. I love that moment. (laughs) Yeah, because it's just supposed to be, like, such a boring, like, you're at the office, just nothing interesting about it at all, and then just the, the scream as the title (laughs) it's like yes you are in the right movie theater (laughs) 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 so we uh go then to uh see our 
group of college kids, Dana uh, and Jules. And we open with Dana, who is in her underwear um, and a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just want to say, I don't necessarily take an issue with a woman like in her in her private home standing around in her underwear because that is normal I feel like yeah like nobody likes to wear pants I do take an issue with her doing so in front of an open window where anyone can look in and see yeah I feel like that is less likely to happen but <laughs> anyway uh so Dana is um who will become known as our virgin yes. <laughs> in this even though when we meet her she is uh, currently uh, suffering heartbreak because she had had an affair with her teacher. Um, Jules uh, is her best friend and is newly blonde, so she's going to play the role of the whore. Um, then uh, we meet Jules' uh, boyfriend, Kurt, played by Chris Hemsworth. Oh, sorry. Dana is Kristen Connolly. Jules is Anna Hutchison. And uh, Kurt is Chris Hemsworth, who presents as a typical jock but he also has a lot of uh, academic knowledge, which we find out in this first scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are joined by Kurt's friend Holden, uh, played by Jesse Williams, who's uh, sort of they're trying to fix Dana up with uh, as like a rebound from her, her broken heart with the professor. And then all four of them uh, meet up with Marty, who drives up... Uh, <laughs> with a, a bong in his car, <laughs> like currently getting high as he's driving there, um, which he then folds down into a coffee cup as they all pile into Kurt's RV and head off. And we see a man watching them uh, and, and reporting back to Citizen and Hadley who are watching uh, the teens uh, all on monitors in their facility. Uh, the kids stop for gas at <laughs> just the most stereotypical horror movie gas station yeah. you can possibly imagine <laughs> and the gas station attendant comes out and is is suitably creepy and and rude to all of them um and and just gives off bad vibes all around um <laughs> they are not deterred though and they go on <laughs> and then we get uh we go back to uh the facility and we see uh, Citizen and Hadley deal with a call come in from the gas station attendant who is called the Harbinger. Um, <laughs> and also his name is apparently Mordecai. Mordecai? Yeah, I know this, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which they are, <laughs> they sort of uh, prank him by putting him on speakerphone as he's going on about how the, the sacrifices are ready for the old gods and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> So we get a little bit more information here about what's really going on yeah. um, and that they're setting these kids up for a sacrifice. Oh, we also see the kids drive through a tunnel um, beside which there is like a big sort of uh, ravine, I guess. Um, and in between the two, we see a, a bird flying uh, and meeting a force field and falling down uh, dead. So there's a force field there. The audience knows. <laughs> the kids do not <laughs> Uh, they arrive at the cabin and separate into their rooms and Holden's in a room with this like super creepy painting <laughs> that he takes down and uh, immediately realizes that there's a two-way mirror there and Dana's on the other side um, about to change into her swimsuit and so he lets her know uh, because he's a good guy <laughs> yeah. that there's a uh, that he can see there I will say I don't know that the two-way mirror actually works within the setup that we have <laughs> for this movie like, why is it there? Because I, I, I don't understand why it would well, be there. Well, <laughs> the family seemed to be kind of gross. It's yeah, but so... wouldn't they be, have been dead before the whole two-way mirror thing would be put in? Oh. Okay, so maybe that's purely <laughs> a setup for this specific situation. Yeah. Because the whole house is, like, rigged in, a, you know, in, like, a certain way. That... True. Maybe they use the cabin for other setups, I guess. Yeah. Uh... I guess I, I assumed that because, like, at the end, they're like, I don't even know if Kurt has a cut, you know, cousin. Like, yeah. that, that that they would be drawn to this particular spot under surveillance more than they travel from, like, spot. Not that they wouldn't have more than one, but, yeah, that. 
Right. That they reuse. I mean, the no, I see. I see that the cabin has been set up, but I'm just curious what the purpose of the two way mirror would be to the people in the facility who are nowhere near the the cabin. They're like deep underground, so like it's not like they can use it. I assume. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> it still works. It like it it, it. it. I mean, it only occurred to me this time watching the movie, and this is probably my third or fourth time watching. Anyway, so back at the facility, the. All of the, the workers there are placing bets, and uh, a new security guy, Truman, played by Brian White, is clearly very put off by this, and uh, Lynn is uh, trying to explain that it's just people blowing off steam um, because of what their, their job is very difficult. And we go back to the cabin. Everybody's playing truth or dare. Uh, Marty dares Jules to make out with, quote-unquote, that moose over there, which is actually a wolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On, uh, or wolf's head rather than it's on the wall and we get a uh, kind of extended wolf makeout scene she's she does a great job she, she really does, does. She really goes for it yeah. <laughs> um and it's and it's a kind of a funny scene everybody's a little thrown i think because uh at this point that her friends know that jules is acting a little strange um and then next dana is dared to go down into the um basement and kurt's already acting a bit like a jerk here he's all like oh you're gonna be dared to do something then you won't do it um <laughs> yeah so they're clearly already being affected they go down in, into the basement and each of them there's just stuff everywhere and each of them picks up a different thing the the, the uh facility guys are all watching with rapt attention as uh, Dana picks up a diary, Kurt picks up a like puzzle ball thing, Jules is looking at a wedding dress and a necklace that goes with it, uh, Marty is uh, handling a conch shell, <laughs> and Holden is uh, mesmerized by a child's jewelry box that has a little dancing ballerina inside of it. Um, and as they're all sort of doing things with these uh Dana interrupts and starts reading from the diary, um, which Marty is not cool with. No. <laughs> and, and I'm on board with Marty here. You know, don't read. Don't read the fucking Latin. Yeah. Um, but she does. And zombie redneck torture family is the winner of the <laughs> <laughs> So uh, maintenance and Ronald the intern have to uh, split the bet, apparently. <laughs> Uh, back at the cabin, uh, the kids are uh, starting to act even more out of character, particularly Kurt and Jules, who uh, go off into the woods uh, to uh, have sex, basically. And <laughs> Marty is is on to all the weirdness that's happening, but he's being dismissed because he's high. Um, <laughs> and Kurt and Jules, as they're out in the woods with a little help from some pheromones, uh, from the facility as well as a little temperature adjustment uh they start having sex that are interrupted by the redneck torture family who uh are able to knock kurt away and then decapitate jules and uh kurt runs away back at the facility citizen and hadley say a sort of prayer and then pull like an ancient looking lever which breaks like some blood into what seems to be an old altar the pieces are coming together yeah yeah <laughs> Marty is seems kind of like he's just high and paranoid, but it's not paranoid if things are actually happening. So <laughs> <laughs> a voice tells him to go outside, and he does. But he runs into Kurt, um, who's on his way back, and they all barricade themselves inside. Um, they are pre uh, preparing to barricade themselves together when a voice tells them to split up, and <laughs> and so they do, <laughs> and they each go into their separate rooms. <laughs> It's so frustrating when you're watching this as like as a viewer and, and you know as a horror fan, everybody knows like, oh you gotta stick together and, and you've just got this facility that's like feeding them all the absolute wrong things to do when you're yes. in a horror movie. Yeah. But it's enjoyable because like you know also as opposed to watching a horror movie and then just seeing them make the bad decisions to keep the plot going because they cannot yeah. figure it out. It's like, no, they want to do the right thing and then they're being forced into doing the wrong thing. Yes, And exactly. so we all get to laugh about it. <laughs> uh, so they go into their separate rooms and are immediately locked in. Um, Marty is um, 
trying to figure out what's going on. He breaks a lamp and finds a camera that's inside, but then before he can do anything about it, a zombie attacks him, pulls him out of the window, and seems to kill him. Marty's lever is pulled. Uh, Dane is also attacked by a zombie through the window, and Holden breaks through uh, the mirror, and uh, they escape through a hatch in the floor and uh, into uh, just the worst possible place that you can escape into, which is like a torture room <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> uh, they are almost captured by a zombie, but then Dana... Well, one one interesting thing here is that the kill, uh, destroying the brain does not seem to work on these zombies. As Dana takes like a fire poker and, and stabs the, that zombie through the eye, yeah, uh, and then he just keeps on going. Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess dismemberment dismemberment's the only way with these guys. These are old school like Evil Dead zombies. They all get out to the outside where Kurt is uh, already there, and they pile into the RV. They're trying to leave, and back at the facility, they realize that the tunnel that they came through has not been blown, although it was supposed to be. Uh, so we watch Richard Jenkins run through um, to get to uh, the demolition department and, and blow the tunnel himself. Um, and they, it happens just as the kids are like halfway through, so then they have to back out. Very exciting. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great sequence. Yeah. Uh, at that point, Kurt decides to make the jump over the ravine uh, to the other side, and it's just, oh god. <laughs> I love this scene because it's just a great use of the dramatic irony of the audience knowing that there's a force field, and they just really play it up with, with Kurt, you know, I'm going to get to the other side, and I'll limp if I have to, and yeah. I'm going to bring back cops and choppers with big guns, and we're going to take those things out. Yeah. <laughs> The it's hero that big, we need, yes, yeah. Yeah, this <laughs> big hero moment. Uh, <laughs> and then he drives, he takes off, and he just splats against that force uh, field like a bug on a windshield <laughs> and falls down. <laughs> uh, so Holden and Dana get back in the car. They're driving, uh, trying to figure out where to go when a zombie who was hiding in the car the entire time uh, stabs Holden through the back of the head. It's rough. Uh, And then they go careening into the lake. Dana manages to escape uh, and gets to the surface and back to the dock uh, when she's attacked by another zombie. But back in the facility, we are celebrating. Everything's good because Dana was the virgin and her death is optional. (laughs) Everybody else is dead. And so we're, we're all good. Everything's everything's okay i really enjoy that because (laughs) it is like the climax of the film it would be the most exciting part of any film and it is just playing in the background as if it's just like something you have on at a party like just (laughs) what's really going on is the celebration of all like the the you know it's also great because i feel like you know knowing what, what happens later in the movie we're going to see all of these people brutally murdered and so to have them having this party as Dana is like fighting for her life in yeah. the background of the scene as this like happy music is playing is like, you know what? I'm okay with it. Yeah, they're just drinking. They don't care. It's yeah. they don't care. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like whatever. Um, <laughs> and it is one of my my favorite uh, lines from Bradley Woodford in the movie when he's talking about like, you know, I really hope this girl makes it. I just you know, and then he, he sees them coming, the people coming in to celebrate, and he just switches tracks to tequila is yeah. my lady. <laughs> <laughs> but as they're celebrating, the red phone on the wall starts ringing, and Citizen and Hadley realize that something is very, very wrong. They go and answer the phone uh, and tell everybody to cut the music because uh, apparently somebody is still alive. And back with Dana, who's fighting for her life, she is saved by Marty, who was not killed by the zombie. <laughs> it's a great moment. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he managed to escape his zombie. She gets Dana away, and they go to um, like the zombie's grave where they popped out, and uh, he has found like a secret panel underneath um, where they're in like sort of like an elevator type situation where there's a panel on the on the wall that Marty's been messing with. And apparently that's why the um, uh, tunnel didn't blow earlier because Marty was messing with something that affected it. 
Uh, so he says that he can figure out, he thinks he can make it go down, <laughs> which Dana replies, do we want to go down? <laughs> but they realize they have no other options. So down they go into an elevator system um, and they're surrounded. They have like glass on all sides and there are elevators, uh, other elevators with glass uh, all around them where they see a bunch of different monsters, including um, a very creepy looking ballerina <laughs> and like a wraith. Uh, as she's as Dana's looking at um, this sort of Hellraiser type guy, she realizes that all the things that they were playing with down in the basement were things that would trigger one of these monsters, and that they were made to sort of choose how they would die. Um, they uh, back at the facility, they have prepared for a guy has has been uh, sent to kill Marty. Um, because he still needs to die. And so the, when the elevator opens, he tries to get Dana out so that he can kill Marty. But the pieces of the zombie that are still there in the elevator with them distract him. <laughs> and so they're able to get away. Um, and they are hiding as uh, a bunch of other security guys come right next to a control panel with a big button that says purge system. <laughs> 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 Which Dana decides to hit. <laughs> Uh, releasing all of the monsters uh, into the facility and it's just it's so much fun just <laughs> there's a killer unicorn there's um, like a a uh, some like purge type uh, people with like doll masks on yeah. there's a, a bunch of like creepy like doctors and just so many different monsters come out and um, you know we've got cameras all over the facility showing each of them uh, uh, so showing all the pandemonium that's happening. <laughs> it's a lot of fun for a horror fan just to see like how many how many little references can you pick up on uh, as you're watching this movie. Yeah, there are a lot of references. It's also uh, like Bradley Whitford is upset, you know, that he hasn't gotten like to see a merman and stuff like that. Yes. So it's like <laughs> if you feel like you would have preferred uh, something else to be summoned, you get to see a little bit of all of them. <laughs> like, you get to see, like, a unicorn, you know, stab somebody and stuff like that. I, I personally was happy because while there is a giant spider in yeah. one of the cubes, there is minimal spider. Nobody can vote <laughs> on it. I don't have to see it kill anybody. There's vi in, in this movie with so many different, like, mm -hmm. typical, like, horror things and stuff like that or that were inspired by the things minimal spider right really appreciate it i'm, I'm very happy for you <laughs> i didn't think about that I'm glad. <laughs> um so yeah back in the control room uh hadley lynn and truman are all sort of killed dispatched one at a time um hadley by the merman that he was so <laughs> eager to see <laughs> and it is just the funniest merman <laughs> monster i feel like uh, it's just like this like it has to like crawl over to him because he's on the floor yeah and then it, like eats him and blood like spurts out of its blowhole <laughs> <laughs> it's great um citizen escapes through down a hatch um but before he can get very far he's killed by dana who's also she and marty have made their way down there uh as they've been trying to escape all the monsters that they let loose um, as he's dying, he tells Dana that she needs to kill Marty. Um, they, uh, Dana and Marty get to the sort of altar space, and they are met by the director, who's played by Scorny Weaver. Uh, and she confronts them and fills them in about what's been going on, that they are basically um, a sacrifice to the old gods that humanity needs to make in order to keep them dormant. Um, and if they don't kill Marty, then uh, basically all of humanity is going to die because the old gods will rise again. So, I mean, as I feel like anyone would do, Dana is considering killing Marty. She has, she has a gun. She's, she's pointing it at him uh, and she's thinking about it. And um, Marty does not let her know that there is a werewolf right behind her who then attacks her. <laughs> but he still, he still saves her from the werewolf. He, he, that once once she's been disarmed, he uses the gun to shoot the werewolf. At the same time, the little uh, zombie redneck girl uh, from uh, up top has made her way down and has attacked uh, Sigourney Weaver. And uh, they go off over the side, they're pushed off over the side, I think, by Marty. 
so that's it. Dana and Marty <laughs> smoke a joint as they contemplate the end of humanity. And um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we get this great dialogue. Dana says, I'm so sorry. I almost shot you. I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> hey, hey, no, I totally get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I let you get attacked by a werewolf and then ended the world. <laughs> Uh, and they both decide it's time to give some somebody other than humanity a shot. Uh, and back on uh, at the cabin, we watch as the ground shakes, and then a giant hand crashes through, destroying it and ending the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Cabin in the Woods. So good. Yay. There is a moment with Marty that I enjoy because he, <clears throat> most cars now like newer cars you know like they have the little like key fobs and how you lock them and stuff like that but before it's like you'd have to push the button and then check the door and Mm -hmm. he does that but his window is down but he has to make sure that the car is like locked and push the button and try the handle yeah he 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 pushes the lock down through the open window and then pulls the handle just to make sure sure. yeah (laughs) and it's like little things like that i feel like he's the voice of reason about certain things but then things like that are why you don't trust him when he says that there's like puppeteers. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. Okay. And yes, our second movie, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, is, came out in 2018 and it is $3.99 on Amazon to rent it. Oh, yes. So is Cabin, I believe. It's only available to rent right now. Okay. Yeah. I, I just used the copy that I that we own so i didn't yeah it was for a streaming version but i did not see so bad times opens with felix played by nick offerman he goes into a hotel room with a bag and a gun and he buries the bag under the floorboards and then when he's done and has the room put back together there's a knock at the door and felix is shot great opening it is it is a really great great opening (laughs) we're going to come back to that person that shot him later and why he (laughs) cannot be trusted uh so then we have darlene played by cynthia revo uh who runs into or meets i guess father daniel flynn played by jeff bridges who are arriving at the el royale hotel which is right on the border of california and nevada and you can choose to stay in the california or nevada side we also meet laramie seymour sullivan uh played by john ham who sells appliances miles the only employee Seems very nervous about having a priest and says this is no place for a priest (laughs) at this random hotel. I mean, he's right. (laughs) He is. It just seems really odd in the moment. (laughs) Um, So he checks in Darlene and Father Flynn as Emily, played by Dakota Johnson, comes tearing through the parking lot in her car. Which really, she's uh, thinking later about how she's driving and what's in her car. Yeah. That seems. Not the smartest. No. No. Um, I just thought about that. So he then checks her in, and as she signs a ledger, she just signs it, fuck you. So then Laramie is the last person to be checked in, insisting on getting room one, the honeymoon suite. So then we get almost like chapters where it goes sort of like from room to room. Mm -hmm. So we start with in room one. Laramie calls home. And talks to his daughter. And now suddenly, while he had a southern accent before, he does not have an accent anymore. (laughs) And he opens the phone that he's on and he removes a black wiretap, which he was expecting to find. And then he finds a white one, which he was not. So (laughs) then he goes around the room, finding an, an entire second set of wire traps throughout the room. And then he's just staring at the mirror. Back to mirrors. He goes to the lobby and he takes the, the master key for the hotel. And on the television in the background, uh, we are hearing that what they're calling the Malibu Massacre of this doctor and his wife where they, they've been murdered. So Laramie finds a door leading behind all of the rooms uh, where all the mirrors are. There's, they're two-way mirrors and so he can see into each room. So he can see that Father Flynn is just prying up the floorboards to his room, which would be so bizarre to just see <laughs> yeah. someone... Just doing that. And then he sees Darlene, who's putting up, like, soundproofing. Um, And then there's, like, little speaker boxes in all the rooms. And so he can hear her singing in the room. And then he then sees Emily drag a girl into her room and tie her up. And then there's also a knife and a gun on the table. 
And then he sees a video camera set up for another room that is unoccupied. So someone is clearly filming the guests, watching and, and filming the guests. This I like just how wild this opening for the movie is. This is like, we start with, you know, just the, the wire, like, oh, he's got a wiretap, what's going on there? And then the, and then there are a bunch of wiretaps he, he doesn't know yeah. <laughs> where they came from. And then we, we immediately get this, like, oh, there's a whole observation area behind each room. <laughs> yeah. So like just one thing on top of another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, so this hotel is not what it seems to be. <laughs> and as our title, so <laughs> should have used an Airbnb. Um, so Laramie, who's actually Special Agent Broadbeck, calls into Herbert Hoover and says, we have a problem, which you so often hear in movies. A very cliched movie line. So we then shift points of view to room five, and Darlene has recently lost her job as a backup singer, and Flynn comes to her room and offers to buy her dinner. So, yeah, I hate that scene where we get the flashback of her yeah. with, the, with the guy who's just like, oh. yeah, <laughs> just the worst possible like movie producer stereotype. He's just like railing into her because she was off key or something, or he thinks she was off key. Yeah, <laughs> just for forever, and it's just like, ah, oh. just that that kind of. Like you meet the people like this in real life too, who are who are just they have a little bit of power and they're just going to lord it over you as much as possible, yeah. you know. Especially probably like white men in power to black people in nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so over Pi, Darlene explains that she has a singing gig in Reno, but it stands at the El Royale is cheaper, so that is why she is currently there. And then Flynn admits that some days he wakes up and he can't remember who he is or what he's doing. She agrees to have a toddy with him, but he pours something into her drink, and when he turns around, she hits him in the face with a bottle across the face. So then back to Agent Broadbeck. He calls Washington, D.C. and tells them um, that the operation has been compromised. And he did not find the film that he was looking for, but he mentions the kidnapping, and they tell him that no one can leave the hotel, but not to interfere with the kidnapping. So now we shift points of view to room seven. Billy Lee, played by Chris Hemsworth, meets Rose, who has just arrived in California after running away from home. Rose wakes up in the hotel room tied to the chair. Emily says that she's going to get her clear and as far away from him as possible. Agent Broadbeck ignores orders and trying to, you know what? That's another, I'm going to get a little bit further. And that's another thing that also kind of like happens just like in Cabin. So um, ignoring his orders, uh, he tries to help kidnap Rose um, and talk his way into the hotel room that she's in. But Emily refuses. So he breaks down the door and he hits her. And Emily shoots Broadbeck with a shotgun killing him and breaking the mirror. And then Emily and Rose hear someone behind the mirror. <laughs> but because of a different point of view, so like Broadbeck is being our hero here, mm -hmm. thinking that he is like saving, you know, like a kidnapped victim. Like she is a, a child for the, you know, like she's underage. Yeah. And so he thinks that he's like saving her. And he's just, like, the first person to die. And that's kind of like Chris Hemsworth having his, like, hero moment. And then there's oh, the hero yeah. just dies, like, <laughs> way too early. Like, the, you know, kind of like that figure. Um, but, yes. So, uh, going back a little bit and switching points of view, Miles finds Father Flynn on the ground with a head wound after being hit with the bottle. Father Flynn can't remember what happened. And trying to get Miles to stop asking questions, Flynn force forcefully says... I fell down. I'm old. <laughs> and Miles wants to confess to him. He clearly has a lot of guilt on his conscience. Uh, and Miles notices that the master key is missing. So he, Flynn follows Miles down the hallway past all the rooms um, and says, I only watch who they tell me to watch. Um, so he records it and he mails it off. Miles did keep film from one famous man who was kind to him. And because Miles is standing in front of the mirror where Emily uh, shoots Agent Broadbeck, he gets a face full of buckshot. 
So they go back again to Darlene knocking out Father Flynn. She runs away and sees Broadbeck sabotaging all of the cars because no one's supposed to leave. So she tries to leave, but her car won't start. She sees that um, she sees Emily kill Broadbeck and then step through the mirror. And so then Rose makes a phone. A lot of information to take in. It is. It's just like all these like points of view. Yeah, it's just it's a lot. It's easy when you're watching it to kind of just like follow all the different points of view. It's just weird kind of relaying the, yeah. the information. Like wild things are happening, but also it makes complete sense as you're watching the yeah. movie. You know, they they do a really good job of laying everything out and giving you just enough information to catch you up with the latest like wait what the hell just happened you know (laughs) yeah so rose makes a phone call and tells the person on the other end where she is darlene steals the cable back for her car and then flynn knocks on the window of her car he explains that he wasn't trying to hurt her and he admits that he's not really a priest (laughs) (laughs) so then we go to room four uh we see an armored truck robbery by flynn Mark O'Brien from Arrival and Ready or Not, and Felix, uh, Nick Offerman's character from the very beginning. <laughs> uh, Flynn gets 15 years for larceny and explains that his brother Felix was killed at the meetup. So we do not trust Mark O'Brien. If we've learned no. something, Mark O'Brien is the one who shot Nick Offerman at the beginning. <laughs> he cannot be trusted. He cannot be trusted. We learned from Ready or Not. Yes. I guess that this one came before that. <laughs> yes. Well, and Arrival also. He blows up the spaceship. So, oh, that's right. Like... <laughs> We need a guy who we can, who seems innocent enough, but we can believe we would double cross somebody. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if there is a marriage story too, Scarlett Johansson needs to watch out. Cause if I have yeah. learned one thing, <laughs> um, so yes. Yeah, so father Flynn couldn't remember in which room the money was buried in. So he offers Darlene half of the money if she can help and he can get into to her room to, to dig up the money. So Emily now has bloody miles tied up instead of her sister. Rose skips off in the hotel. Miles asks up. <laughs> yeah. Rose is just the worst, can I just say? Yeah. Oh my God, I hate this character so much. She is. She's so good at it, though. Like, just she is. kind of being like young and just nothing bothers her. She's just she's sort a of like psychopath. Un- yeah. 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 She's just a young psychopath. But like also really happy. Like, she doesn't put off dangerous vibes because she yeah. is just like skipping and just like swinging through and she's like, Willing to overshare information that she doesn't need to. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Miles asks how his face looks. And Emily says, to be honest, I don't remember what you looked like before this. But I think you should make peace with the fact that things have changed. <laughs> he asks if she's going to kill him. She says, how can I not after what you've seen? He then describes a lot of really terrible stuff that he <laughs> has seen while working there. Oh, Concluding <laughs> an encounter with a wolf. Yes. By the way. All right. So we have that in both of them as well. <laughs> yep. Uh, what a weird thing to tie into both movies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yes, things that are way worse than what has just happened, uh, <laughs> and it makes a really good point. Like uh, you know, and also I don't know your names. <laughs> Um, which unfortunately then Rose, while just swinging from a chandelier, just tells them both of their names, yeah. just putting him in a really unfortunate spot. Um, and then Emily wants to know where the others are, thinking that they're, you know, a liability to her. So then through the mirror, she sees Darlene singing in her room. And what she can't see is that Flynn, um, to the music while she is singing, is opening mm-hmm. up the floorboards to get the bag of money. Yeah, it's a great sequence. I mean, the fun with, the, you know, her singing is great, but then, you know, she claps along to the music so that he can, uh, like, hammer into the floorboards yeah. at the same time and hide the sound, since they know that the mirror is somebody could potentially be watching yeah. <laughs> from from the mirror. It's great. Great tension. <laughs> yeah. So Miles asks Rose to not kill him, and she says it's not entirely up to her. So then we see that Rose is the one who killed the doctor and his wife on the news. And Billy Lee and his followers arrive at the El Royale Hotel. Which brings us to Billy Lee. (laughs) Uh, 
so Emily visits Billy Lee's cult and watches Rose fight another girl for who gets to sleep in Billy Lee's bed as like a bigger message to the cult. Right. And so Emily is concerned for her sister. Uh, and then back to present, everyone is being tied up now by Billy Lee and his cult members. Um, I can't recall Chris Hemsworth in another villainous role like this. Does he play the villain very often? I can't think of another I role. I don't think so. I mean, in Ghostbusters, he kind of like, he's supposed to be good, but, you know, his body is taken, oh, right. he's taken over. But that's not really like, yeah, it's not really. He's great at it. He really is. Like, do you have any information? About, I, I forgot to look it up. I feel like he's doing a voice. I feel like he's doing like he's trying to imitate some a voice of someone but I couldn't place it and I wasn't sure if there was any information out there about for for this role for Billy Lee. Um in general like Billy Lee is kind of um he's supposed to be like a Charles Manson figure. Yeah. Cuz it's cuz it's 1969 and so like I have some stuff later about like the music and stuff like that. But yeah, it's supposed to be like a, a Charles Manson sort of cult. Um, I guess I can't remember it, what Charles Manson sounds like. Maybe oh, I have I have no <laughs> idea what he sounds like. Um, yeah, so I have no idea about his his voice in particular. I do know it was a wig that he's wearing a wig, and uh, that Drew Goddard did not want him to wear a wig. He's like, ah, oh, they don't look at it. You can you know you can always tell. He's like, just check this one guy out, and then nobody <laughs> knew he was wearing a wig the whole movie, and they just thought he cut his hair when they did the rap party. So uh, yeah, I would not. I mean, it didn't occur. I mean, I probably should have because I don't remember him having long hair outside of this movie. But it didn't never occurred to me that it was a wig while I was watching. It's not overly obvious, I don't think. Yeah, but I'll I'll be honest. Uh, if your cult leader looks like Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> I feel like I get it a lot more than I do Charles Manson. Yeah, very true. Yeah. <laughs> They were just like, and he's basically shirtless for the entire movie as well, which yeah. sort of lends to <laughs> yeah. Let's just have him undulating shirtless <laughs> this whole movie. I, it sounds like the actors had a difficult time with that scene where he is dancing that way. And like, so I watched that scene again, like knowing that information and just seeing him kind of like do that to like Jeff Bridges is just, yeah. uh, so... Anyway, um, so he, <laughs> Billy Lee now has uh, the money that they dug up from the floor, and he has the, the film that Broadbeck was looking for earlier, and Billy Lee wants to know where the money came from, and he's enjoying having this power over people and wants to make Emily suffer for taking Rose away. Um, so Billy Lee makes Emily play roulette. Emily picks red, which he says uh, makes Miles black, and it lands on black, so he shoots Emily. Flynn admits that he stole the money. Um, and then while talking about the film, Darlene is not interested in what's on it. And he doesn't understand why she wouldn't be interested in what's on on the film. But she says a man, she assumes anyway, it's a man who talks a lot. He talks so much he thinks he believes in something and really just wants to fuck who he wants to fuck. I've seen it enough. I'm not even mad about it anymore. I'm just tired I'm just bored of men like you. You think I don't see who you are. See you. Um, okay. And then I just lost. What the hell? You think I don't <laughs> see you. For who you are. Yes. I don't know what my autocorrect must have done something. A fragile little man praying on the weak and lost. I've heard it. And he starts to say something and she just cuts him off and says, I don't care. I'd rather sit um, here and listen to the rain and just totally calls him out to his face. <laughs> It's so satisfying. <laughs> it is, because he has this whole cult of people that just worship him and are willing to yeah. do all the stuff for him. And it's like, yeah, this one person, she doesn't give a shit about who <laughs> is on the film and what it doesn't matter to her. It does not change her life. And then also you, when you're just, yeah, terrible and small and you want to make yourself big. So the power goes out, and Billy doesn't like the, the quiet. He's, like, even more vulnerable now. And so he tells her um, to sing or play the game. Um, and just when she hits, like, the big note of the song that she's singing in, I feel like you get into the moment, he just, like, hits the, like, he just spins the roulette wheel really, like, rudely um, and says, I've heard better. So then Flynn headbutts Billy Lee, and there's, like, a big scuffle and a fight. 
And we now learn about the maintenance clauses. So we learn about Miles. So Miles is in Vietnam, and he killed 123 people. And he feels really bad about it. <laughs> and he doesn't really want to kill people anymore. Um, he was, yeah, he's like a, a sharpshooter. He's just always been really, really good at shooting well, <laughs> apparently, yeah. since he was a little boy. Yeah. And so he just feels a lot of guilt about it. He doesn't want to do it anymore. I remember this moment in the theater, too, is, was so great because... You know he's he seems to be breaking down as like the fire the fight is going on around him in the in the El Royale and says he says uh, I don't want I can't kill any more people or something like that he says and uh, Darlene says how many people have you killed and he says you know hundred and how many how many I think it's hundred twenty three yeah hundred twenty three and the whole theater was just like what. <laughs> Like, he's seen, like, such a timid little guy this entire time, and, like, hearing that he has this, like, huge body count was just the last thing that everybody expected. Yeah, because he also, he seems to carry so much guilt the entire movie, and he assumed yeah. that it is because of the job that he is in, where he is, like, doing bad things, where he's, like, you know, watching people and, like, doing all these things that way, but he's just, like working for people like that he's yeah. just like this little worker that has to like, like these things he, he, they tried to tell you earlier in the movie something happens and and uh when he's trying to confess to to jeff bridges and you know, they're, they come across you know the porn and everything and he says father this isn't even what i was trying to confess to. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like oh this was it. yeah yeah <laughs> it's all the people he murdered yeah so um, Darlene tells him that he doesn't need to kill any more people. Like, just gives him the peace of mind. Like, it's fine. So then by his own choice, and finally not just because he is told yeah. um, that he has to kill people, he picks up the gun. He shoots Billy Lee. He shoots Manny from The Good Place. <laughs> <laughs> also in a very Oh, small my God, that was him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just now realizing because yeah. his hair was so different. Okay, yeah. anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Jason is shot <laughs> along with all the other followers. Um, and Rose is uh, upset and she stabs him. So Flynn shoots her. Fucking Rose. <laughs> uh, so then Flynn provides Miles what he needs by wanting the whole movie to be able to confess his sins before dying. Flynn, it's so sad. And also, we haven't talked about this yet, but. Jeff Bridges in this movie is so good. Yes. <laughs> he has all these moments where he's, you know, he's, he's losing his, his memory and, and these moments when he's clearly, like, sort of lost in, like, what's going on uh, that he's just conveying through his eyes. And it's so effective and he's so good at it. And I feel like if awards were actually about awarding best acting, <laughs> there are, I think him and... Uh, What's her name? Cynthia Erivo should have been nominated for yeah. this movie because they're both just amazing. They anyway. really, yeah, they're they're really <laughs> good. I feel like because he also like when he does have his memory and stuff like that, he's he's like a criminal. He's not like mm -hmm. well, he is very likable. He's not like the the softest, kindest human that you've ever met. It's like no, he's here to like get the money. He was clearly a criminal, and then he has to pair that with when he can't remember everything and the level of like vulnerability of just like, I yeah. don't necessarily, I don't know who I am and just trying to like going back and forth, like between that. Yeah. He does a really great job. Yeah. <laughs> um, they grab the money and Flynn and Darlene grab the money. They burn the film and they burn the ledger. And then in Reno, uh, Jerry Gergich introduces Darlene <laughs> to the stage. Yeah, because we have multiple Parks and Rec people in this. Um, so, yeah, Jim O'Hare introduces her, d introduces Darlene to the stage, and Flynn um, is there in the audience to hear her, to hear her sing. And it's nice, and it, it ends, it's all, and we're happy, even though a lot of people died. Actually, yeah, a lot of people died. It's like both movies kind of end on this nice note between, like, a male-female friendship, uh, you know, platonic relationship, even though, I mean, <laughs> Dana and Marty are about to be killed, but <laughs> still, it doesn't, it, the movie does end with them. Yeah. <laughs> a nice moment with them. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Um, so for this movie, so we have that five-minute one-shot of John Hamm walking past all the rooms. Mm -hmm. So that took 27 takes to get it right. 
Uh, It took eight months of prep um, to figure out because he is like one shot. He is looking into all of these like rooms and stuff like that. So the reflections following him going from one room to the other and then back to the other room and back. And he's sort of uh, reflected uh, the entire time as well. Yeah. Seeing his reflection. Yeah, in uh, all the, from like, the from, window. yeah, the windows, like, from, from his perspective, even though they're two-way mirrors. But, yeah, so, like, having to move with him past all of this glass and stuff and trying to not get the camera in the reflection. Mm-hmm. And then also because Cynthia Rivo is singing live. All of her songs in this are, are live also. They're not, like, pre-recorded, so she has to do them. So for those 27 takes, she has to sing that song over and over again. So she has to get it right along with, like, eventually they decided, like, oh, to have her mess up because she has to hit certain points in the song at points where the camera is or what people are doing and stuff like that. So really the fact that it only took 27 takes <laughs> is amazing. Yeah. Um, but yes. So there's that. Uh, the El Royale was built from scratch on a soundstage with much of the furniture and decor being custom made for the movie, which is weird also because like seeing them, like there was like a behind the scenes thing where John Hamm is like going to the cars and then they like start the rain and it's just like, You'd think we're outside. Like, it seems yeah. like we should be outside. <laughs> we're in a parking lot. But, yeah, no. So, um, and then back to, to Billy Lee. So, yeah, he's loosely based on Charles Manson. And then the song used to introduce him, 1230, Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyon by the Mamas and the Papas, was also, well, I guess it, the song was playing in another room when Sharon Tate and her friend's bodies were found mm-hmm. after being murdered by the Manson family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Hush by Deep Purple is also in the movie. And both of those songs are also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Another film that has like the Manson family that plays a significant part in it. Because we're watching yeah. this and we're like, we've listened to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack so many times. That we're just like, this is also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And like, this is also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, yeah. So those, uh, the, that's my trivia for Bad Times. Yeah. All right, do you want to talk about food? Yeah, okay. There's not a whole lot of food in Cabin in the Woods. That did not stop me. <laughs> Got some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if tequila is your lady, uh, <laughs> you, could make, <laughs> you could make Bloody Marias, <laughs> which are just Bloody Marys with tequila instead of vodka, um, and obviously blood. Yeah, um, <laughs> great choice. You could make some things inspired by uh, all of uh, the monsters who, you know, we see at the very end of the movie. So so you can make sugar plums, which, yes, are a real thing that you can make. Um, (laughs) Or um, a unicorn cake. You remember when those were really trendy, like a few years ago? Yeah, so make a unicorn cake, put some fake blood on the horn. (laughs) That's a great idea, yeah. Uh, Or uh, merman shakes. Also, again, a very trendy food a few years ago, those mermaid shakes wow. that were just like very pastel y. Yes. So just put some blood on the rim, you know, of your mermaid shake. You could have a real like Instagram party. <laughs> yeah. For Kevin. Yeah. Um, and I realize I'm saying edible blood. So some ideas for edible blood raspberry coolie, uh, strawberry syrup, um, or just plain like corn syrup uh, or pancake syrup that's dyed red uh, would work too. A note about edible blood, though, uh, if it's too red, it just doesn't look realistic. So you want to add either some brown food coloring or like some chocolate syrup just to balance the redness and make it look a bit more like blood. It's just something that I see a lot. So I wanted to let people know you need a little brown in your blood in order to make it look realistic. You are professional. If there was someone that I was going to talk to about fake blood, it is definitely you. So And then... Uh, since Marty has his bong that is also like a travel coffee mug, yes. it would be fun to make like a cannabis coffee cake if you are in a state where <laughs> that is something that you can easily do. <laughs> or just some weed brownies if you want to go traditional. All right, that's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you, did you get that list that I emailed you of the monsters? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I do have food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do, as I just lose track of everything. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to make some sort of like retro cookies uh, from the time 
that might be like in the in the lobby but I had found like old old cookbooks and and stuff like that and so um I was looking at several recipes uh, so I ended up making them I did not use your Vincent Price cookbook but I would still probably like to borrow that at, at some oh, point yes. you can borrow it it's great um so yes I ended up making I was gonna do three kinds of cookies I ended up only making two um I did a shortbread that I dipped in chocolate so it's like a half and half um Mm -hmm. it's a gajillion thing and then I made like a cranberry orange icebox cookie and then it has like the red stripe in the middle um so that it kind of is like the the red stripe down the center of the hotel yeah Um, yeah, so I'll I can show you the photo that I did with that because I had some trouble with like trying to like photograph it yesterday. I'm like I don't know what to do. It's just a plate of cookies. Oh. <laughs> so I just did a bad Photoshop job of like putting the plate of cookies over the poster because they have them walking the red mm. line on the poster. So anyway, I'll send that to you later. Um, <laughs> but yes, so um, that's that's what I made. I made some yeah. Some cookies. I was trying to look up some different stuff from like 1969, and they have, you know, some weird recipes as I sent you. Um, and then mm. we started talking about <laughs> lots of lots of Jello mold stuff from from yeah. that era, man. Yeah, they were just so eager to put things in a Jello mold. <sighs> oh, I was gonna ask you. Okay, so they like um, put their money. You know, like on on someone, which I guess really they're putting their money on who they think will be selected and summoned. Right. But I was going to ask you, if you had to put your money on someone, like, to win, like, who you'd be like, this is our best bet. This is who's going to get the job done. Mm. I was going to ask you which monster you thought would get the job done. Uh, hmm. I would probably say... I'm going to go with, oh, well, <laughs> I see, because I'm also thinking of, like, Japan. They managed to uh, uh, take care of, like, some sort of demon creature thing there. So I'm like, maybe a demon would be good, but uh, then is there some sort of ritual that could be done to to get rid of the demon? Um, you know what? My original plan for this, I wanted to put my money on Kevin just because I want to see what a Kevin is. <laughs> uh, so I know what a Kevin is. I had to look it up. Yes. So I looked up Kevin. Yes. Because that's the I thing. I looked it up in the first, well, the first thing that said was like, nobody knows what Kevin is. But you, you found something that says what it is? So, um, yeah, we need to talk about Kevin. So uh, in, <laughs> I guess in the, the novelization, since we don't actually see Kevin in the film, Kevin mm-hmm. is described, well, I, I kind of, there's like a little description that I can explain to you while I can't tell you. But so Kevin is described as a quiet, normal looking person with a small smile on his face who calmly walks through the post purge chaos until he comes across an injured guard. He then proceeds to exsanguinate him in a second. <laughs> Due to his unremarkable appearance, any normal looking human seen in the purge could be Kevin. So he just, like, would look like a normal person, which I guess mm-hmm. would be why, yeah, he just is unassuming. I guess, like, right. a lot of uh, serial killers and stuff like that. And then somehow he can just suck all the blood out of you immediately. So I feel like that would be a pretty good... Um, It'd be a, a pretty good choice, but yeah. I don't know how, like, maybe he's easy to kill yeah, if durable. he's just a person. Yeah, but um, interesting. An interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, I'd also, I, I feel like dismemberment goblins would probably be a pretty safe bet. Yeah, I would like to see the dismemberment goblins. <laughs> what about you? Um, gosh, it's a tough choice for like really, you know, um, getting the, getting the job done. Um, like that hell lord looked pretty scary. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. multiple people can be strong. So like the dolls. Or something like that, you know. There were several of them, like with the with the doll masks mm-hmm. on. Um, it's tough. So, how do they usually get rid of ghosts in films? Usually, it's a matter of like putting them to rest somehow. Uh-huh. You know, there's like a thing that's tying them to the earth that they have yeah. to burn, or yeah, something like that. I can't go with race, then, because, you know, a lot of people, if I was stuck at a cabin, I certainly wouldn't know a ritual to do to get rid of. True. To get rid of them. So, 
Yeah. All right. All right. And then I was going to ask who you'd want to see because there's a difference. I feel like who you'd want to like see in action, you know, like mm-hmm. who you'd want to see a movie about versus like who you would really think is a reliable choice is not really the same thing. Right. I, I would want to see Kevin in that case. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, definitely Kevin. Um, let's see. Well, m- many of these I have seen, you know, in other movies. So it's, it's a little less, uh, I'd like to see Sugar Plum Fairy. And if I had to go up against one, I feel like Sugar Plum Fairy, maybe. I don't know. She seems, she seems reasonable. <laughs> She's just a dancer. <laughs> You know, reasonable is not necessarily the word that I would have thought of for the ballerina with the face of teeth. <laughs> but yes, I suppose she does look kind of like a little girl. So, but yes, I would like to see the sugar plum fairy because that is not something that you normally see. Yeah. So I would be very curious about that if she's just like dancing until she gets to you and then. Um, and then, yeah, does she become something else when the, do her teeth expand in some way? Oh, like maybe her whole face would expand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's see that. Um, <laughs> I do enjoy the name, the Scarecrow Folk. Oh, um, yeah. Just as a, just as a name. Um, but yeah, it's a good list. It's a lot of, you know, references to other Yeah, we've got... Lists. I like that they have both Deadites and Angry Molesting Tree. Uh-huh. A lot of Evil Dead, uh, mm-hmm. Evil Dead references in this movie. Yeah. As there should be. Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that was my uh, that was my question. All right. Um, all right. Then do you want to tell people where they can find us and what the theme for next week is? Yes. Or next, so, next, the next episode is? The next episode. <laughs> So uh, you can find us at movie underscore matchup on Instagram or at sugarednerd.com. And uh, tune in for the next episode where the theme will be Bon Appetit. And as always, do not read the Latin. <laughs>